Turn your Bible, if you would, to book of Matthew. Book of Matthew. We'll begin reading chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, or maybe one of the prophets. All right, well, what about you? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. I tell you what, Peter, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom, that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What a powerful passage of Scripture. What we see right here is a formation of that which you and I are called the church. That which we are experiencing together in this room, in this moment. It's not we go to church. It's not a building is the church. The church is the people. The church are those that God has called together. And what we see right here in the very beginning some very foundational truths about what the church is. But nothing more foundational than these five words. I will build my church. Say, my church. Now, you know, we use that term all the time as a point of identification and hopefully maybe even a point of maybe even pride. My church. You need to to come to my church sometime. You need to, you need to hear, you know, you need, you need to hear this African-American man that sits on a stool and doesn't use notes and it's a sign and a wonder. You need to, you need to come to my church. Our chairs are nice and wide. You'll fit. You need to come to my church. I mean, so we use, we use that terminology and it's not altogether problematic. I do quite a bit of reading on the contemporary condition of the church around the world and do reading and go to conferences and what have you concerning things like church growth and sociological things. How many, how many people can you put in a room at one time before folk begin to feel insecure that there's not room for them? And how many parking places do you need? And we study, we study all of this carefully. And yet we find an interesting phenomenon in the United States that increasing numbers of people are disassociating themselves from the church. Now, not necessarily from God. They say that, you know, we, we want the kingdom. We want the principles of the kingdom. We, we're interested in spiritual things. But it's just that whole, that whole church thing has kind of got me messed up. That whole organized religion thing. And one thinks, and the option would be then disorganized religion? What does that look like? Don't need it, they would say. Don't need it. It's outdated. Plus, I've read my Bible, and Jesus only used the word church twice. 
Yet he spoke of the kingdom over a hundred times. So somewhere there was even an emphasis with Jesus of the kingdom over the church. But I want to submit to you today that they are not separate entities. Someone said it this way, the church is to the kingdom what lungs are to breathing. The church is to the kingdom what lungs are to breathing. But you begin to look at a lot of people that are sort of disassociating themselves now. Maybe for reasons that, you know, they can stay home in their bunny slippers and, you know, they can, they can tune in some great exegetes. They can get on Facebook and they can be spiritual with one another and pretend that they're friends because that's what Facebook calls them, friends. But could it be that part of the disillusionment is that the church is getting increasingly harder to define and delineate as something that is truly divine and distinctive? The church, distinctive, divine, different. And one of the reasons is that perhaps many times it blends in so well with its surroundings. Uh-oh. Now just hang on here a minute. Could it be that at times we've become so temporally relevant as to be eternally irrelevant? Are we relevant to help people with their marriage and their children and their money and hear the principles of the kingdom? And if you do this, then where you are, you'll find yourself in a better place and there's a blessing here. And so we, we learn how to be temporally relevant in our messages and we use movie clips and we use PowerPoint and we've got nice HD video and all the things that are necessary. But in being so temporally relevant, are we becoming eternally irrelevant? We see the church perhaps as an empty canvas where subsequent generations can come in and we can say, well, now we're more enlightened. We know more than our church fathers knew before. Therefore, we're going to continue to kind of, if you wish, rewrite this thing. We're going to kind of draw our own picture of what this is. We're going to continue to improve and, and refine and redefine. Hence the title of this message. God called. He wants his church back. In almost over 30 years of preaching, I've only had this happen twice where God gave me a title before he gave me a message. You know, the good principles of homiletics is that you don't start with a title. You start with a, 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 an idea, a theme, a thesis. You have a scripture. You have a subject. You have so many points. I mean, ideally, no more than three because that's all folks can really retain. Seriously, you go to the store, three things you can remember, but four things, I, I, I need a list. So you, you learn some of these principles after doing this once or twice. But I've only had two messages my entire life where God gave me a title, and then I had to step back and figure out what he wanted to say as a result of that title. I want my church back. You know, a hijacker who hijacks an airplane is really convinced in his own distorted reality field that what he's doing has a greater or higher purpose than the original intent 
of where that airline and all those folk wanted that plane to go. So if United or Delta put a plane up there and it's going to Atlanta and a hijacker takes that plane and somehow he's got an ideology, some, some idea that what I'm doing somehow is, is more appropriate, more important, has a greater priority than the original design of the flight plan that's been filed with the FAA. They're convinced of that. That they have a really good higher purpose in their actions. And I believe that in the church today, and let me hasten to say that as I speak to church, this is not in any way a diatribe against our local church. It's not. I'm speaking about church now, large, capital C, church, God's people. Amen? Everybody get this? I mean, I'll work here. I would like to continue to work here. I love this church. But we look at many things that we've added on over the years in our modern expression of ecclesia. We've become a champion of moral and political causes, a place for the broken and the disenfranchised, a training centers for leadership, sending centers for mission and ministry. And you say, whoa, hold the phone. I, I, I thought all that was, was okay. I thought it was good. It is good. It's okay. We do it. We'll continue to do it. Most of it's even biblical. But you see, before theft can be reported and subsequently something recovered, there has to be a recognition that something is missing. See, the challenge is when we've added so much of our own stuff to the original design and intent, many times, if we're not careful, it becomes hard to even notice that it's missing. Hoarders. Now, I don't know what it is about that program. And I know I keep coming back to it, so obviously I have a problem. My wife can't even stand this. It, it, it comes on, she gets nervous, and goes and starts to clean a closet. And so... I guess it has some positive effects. But, you know, folks have all of this stuff and they've collected and it's there and they're trying to walk through and navigate. And, and basically, you can't see the house anymore for what's been added to the house. There's so much stuff, there's so much addition that it's like where there used to be a house here somewhere. There used to be a floor here. I think there's a door over there somewhere, but we haven't seen that in a long time. There's been no daylight in here in 12 years because we got stuff piled up in front of the windows. So somewhere underneath all this, there's a house. I want to help us this morning find the house. I want us to find the house. So if he wants his church back, Let's look at the process of reporting a theft and figure out then how recovery might occur. Recently, I was in a series of meetings with some friends of mine. We were all st we were staying in the same motel, and he came back to his room after one of the meetings, and someone had, his door had not shut all the way. Someone had pushed the door open, come in, and pretty much cleaned him out. Computer, iPad, 
you know, briefcase. I mean, one of those thefts that is like, oh, this, this, this is painful. And I was there with him as hotel security and the local law enforcement folk were there. And they, were, they began to ask a lot of questions and trying to, first of all, identify what's missing. Can, sir, can you describe the item? Can you describe what's gone? What, what makes that thing that you say is not here anymore, what makes it distinctive? What makes it unique? So that we can hopefully identify it if it shows back up. 1 Peter chapter 2.11 says, Friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. See, you knew you were strange. The Bible says it. But right here we find something that highlights the distinctiveness of the church, God's people, is that we're strange. We're aliens. Abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. And then it goes on and says, live such good lives among the folk that you're with every day. So though even though they, they try to accuse you of wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. In other words, something about you is different. We study the etymology of that word, ecclesia. It literally means to be called out. That's what the church, that's what you are. You are called out. And you're not just called out and called up toward your own destiny. You're called out of all of the stuff. You're above it. You're beyond it. You're not subject to it. Somewhere we're supposed to be a people that look very, very different. Hear me. Our food, our clothes, our consumption, that which we eat and that which, that which we watch and that's which we intake and we enjoy and we laugh at. Somewhere, God's people are supposed to be aliens, strangers. I'm sorry, I don't understand that reference. I didn't see that nasty movie. I'm sorry, I, I, don't, I don't know the song that you're humming because I don't listen to her or him. And they look at us like, what? You haven't seen, have you ever been in that one of those conferences? You mean you haven't, you, you, don't, you didn't see? No, I have no intentions of it. And they, and they look at us. It's just like, what planet are you from? Let's call the kingdom, but we'll get to that. But the thing is, do we look any different? So, Pastor, I'm just being relevant. That's, that's, why, I, that's why I saw that movie. That, that's why I laughed at that. I'm, just, I'm being relevant because I'm going to win them. Oh, okay. Thank you for that. You see... The message of the gospel is intentionally not only antagonistic, but it's anachronistic. It's intended to cut across a narcissistic culture. It's intended to say, you know what? You can't do this. It's intended to say, you can't be all you want to be. The cross... It's a very unpopular message. 
that says, I died for you. And in order for you to effectively follow me, you're going to need to die to yourself. So, whoa, 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 hold up. You don't understand. I've been to Tony Robbins. I've read the books. I'm all about self-actualization. My preacher told me that I had a destiny I was special. Yeah, you are. And so because you're special, you get to die too. Now, somehow, that's kind of an unpopular message. Countercultural. But there's something about the church that's always supposed to be countercultural. We're not supposed to be going with the same tide, jumping off the cliff with the rest of the lemmings. We're supposed to be the ones heading in the other direction, trying to keep the rest of the lemmings from jumping off. And it's never comfortable going in this direction. It's a lot more comfortable to say, oh, oh, there's a cliff. Here we go. So we continue with the detective's report. Okay, you, you describe what it looks like, but I'm still not understanding it because I don't have a real good frame of reference. What, what does it do? Help, help me out. How, what, what does this thing do? And we've already read Matthew 16 on this rock. And the rock Jesus was referring to was not the rock who was Peter. It was the rock of the revelation of who he was. We're all straight on that, correct? But when we look at two other passages, what does it do? Ephesians 1, verses 22 through 23. He put all things under his feet, gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Colossians chapter, Colossians chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have preeminence. And in these three passages from Matthew 16, Ephesians, Colossians, we find nine points that makes the church unique. Number one, Jesus is the one who established the ecclesia. It's his. He, it's, he, it was his idea. Not a bunch of guys coming to say, well, we get together and have some Bible study. And we'll call it church. No. Two. The ecclesia is built on the revelation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Three, the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to be very accurately identified as the church if the gates of hell can't prevail against it. Amen? I mean, not, not a gathering of really nice people that read the Bible and hold each other's hands and sing Kumbaya. But I, I want to be really defined well as this is the ecclesia. These are the weird, separated, alien, strange ones. So when the devil looks down and he says, I'm going to mess you up. And he comes up and he just says, oh, wait, you're the church. I got a problem here because I have no authority over you. You want to be identified with that group of folk. Contains the keys of the kingdom. 
which gives him the power to lock and unlock things on the earth. We all love keys, don't we? Amen? Keys represent power. Keys represent access, authority. When you were in grammar school, you didn't care about the, I mean, you know, the, 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 the principal and the teacher, they were underlings. The real dude who was important, it was the janitor. That dude had a hundred keys. He walked like Quasimodo because they weighed 20 pounds. But you know, when you're a kid, man, that's really impressive. You know, when you see a a guy with that many keys, it's like, he must be important because he doesn't just have a desk. He's got keys. Jesus, number five, he's the head of the church. Don't kid, don't, don't ever forget this. We'll come back to this point in a minute. The church represents the fullness of Christ's body. Seven, Christ fills the church with the fullness of who he is. Now, I don't know what full is, but that's got to be pretty full. Eight, he was before the ecclesia ever was. And finally, he has preeminence over it. Now, that word ecclesia literally means, as you know, called out. But a deeper study of the root of that word And Jesus loved doing this. Jesus loved choosing words that had political and governmental overtones or undertones. Because one of the big things that got Rome excited, one of the things that got the religious community excited was the issue of authority and government. You know, a man gets a little government and he gets real excited to hang on to it. Hello? And so he purposely chose this word, ecclesia. Which doesn't, it, it doesn't necessarily mean church in its original form. It means a selected group of people, a select, a civil body of selected officials. Can you imagine how Jesus is speaking about the church? He's speaking about his headship over the church and is speaking now of, if you wish, a cabinet. The best way this can be described is, is the president's immediate advisors, his cabinet, the secretary of this and the secretary of that. Do you realize as the ecclesia, the called out ones, the selected ones, we are God's cabinet on the earth. We are God's executive authority on the planet. By definition, that's what we are. But we reflect and represent something of his rule. It's not ours. So how are we reflecting him? One of the big questions that I continue to ask in our staff meetings and how we build here, is Jesus easy to find? I mean, yes, we've got a lot of great things going on, but when it comes right down to it, if we are the church, then somewhere Jesus is always going to be easy to find in anything that refers to itself using that nomenclature. We've already read 1 Peter 2, live your life in such a way that, you're, that you will be known something different about your life. But the church also represents truth, reflects truth. 1 Timothy 3, God's household, the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Do you realize you and I are it? If the truth does not come forth from the church, there is no other truth. There's a set of accepted facts, and in a given moment, 
might be received and celebrated as truth. But how many of you know truth can be a moving target where man is concerned? The earth is flat. Come on. That was truth. All kinds of truth that now scientists and physicists and all kinds of other really smart folk are beginning to see that what's been accepted over here that we loosely call truth isn't truth at all because it's a moving target. And yet you and I have the only eternal truth that God has given to the church. Wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1, it could be written about today. It's written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. And Paul goes on, he says, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom didn't know God, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Truth, wisdom belongs to you and I. His intent, Ephesians 3.10, was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. But not only heavenly places, but I believe rulers and authorities in earthly places as well. But it's through the church. We also represent the concept of being his cabinet, yes, but we're also known as ambassadors. Second Corinthians 5 uses this terminology to refer to us as ambassadors, ministers of reconciliation. An ambassador has no authority. I mean, they go and they represent the United States or they represent another nation and they come and they don't have any ability to cut a trade deal. They don't have any ability to enact to exact war powers, all they can do is come back and represent their host government. Amen? That's what you and I do. We don't have any authority in and of ourselves. We're only doing what? We're ambassadors. We're just the mouthpieces for God on the planet today. And God's rule is unlike anything man has devised. Any form of government, any structure that man has or will create. Why? Because it's a theocracy. God's in charge of it. That's one of, that's, that, that's one of the unique distinctions about the church is that man is not in charge of the church. So, whoa, whoa, I, I, whoa. Thought we had pastors. We do, but they're not in charge. God's in charge. Don't ever forget this. Ephesians 5, Paul is writing this. And it's many times it's hard for us to get beyond the, what do you mean submit to my husband? He's a jerk. We can't, it's hard for us to, to kind of get beyond the analogy that Paul is drawing here. But it's very clear that as Christ is the head of the church, the church should do what? Submit to him. 1 Corinthians 12 says, in the church, God has appointed. Uh-oh. Apostles and prophets and teachers and workers of miracles. But it doesn't say that these guys just jumped up and say, oh, I, I'm, I'm in charge here. I'm the best looking and I speak the best, so I'm in charge. Doesn't work that way. God appoints. It makes it unique. But there's one other thing that we have to do. 
if we're both going to report a theft and recover from a theft, we have to prove ownership. Sir, can I'm, okay, we, we, have, we have the description of what's missing, but can, do you have any proof that you own it? Have you ever been marching out of a store and got busted by the, the alarm? And you, I mean, you, just, you, just want to, you just want to cry. You say, I paid for it. I really did. But you're heading out of Costco with your pallet of Milky Ways, you know, and everyone needs a pallet of Milky Ways. And so you're, head, you're headed out of Costco there, and the dude stops you, and you hand him your receipt, and he takes his little marker, and he does what? It's like, these Milky Ways are mine, Jack. I have paid for these, and they are going home with me, all right? But you have something that you're holding that declares that they belong to you. Colossians 1, 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. By him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and visible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things. In him all things hold together. And he is the head of the church. The beginning of the firstborn from among the dead. So that in everything he might have supremacy. To use a vernacular, this is his house. That you in my house now. No, this is his house. And you are his dwelling. You see, Scripture goes on and says in 2 Corinthians 1, He set His seal of ownership upon us. And that's like the guy marking your receipt at the Costco. He set His seal of ownership upon us. He put the Spirit in our hearts as a deposit. Titus 2 says He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for Himself a people that are His very own. This communion table represents the currency by which you were purchased. That's what you hold. Take your, take your communion elements. 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you receive from God, you're not your own. You were bought at a price. He called. He wants his church back. And what you hold in your hands is the currency, is the means by which this purchase, this transaction occurred.